Hi, and it's welcome to another episode of The Leadership Enigma. Now, this podcast really never ceases to surprise me in its ability to provide a platform to hear from so many incredible people around the world. And it continues to remind me that this is a privilege and this is also a very humbling experience where people take the time to speak to me about their life experiences and about their thoughts as regards leadership for themselves, for the people that they lead and for the organizations within which they work and how they can be a force for good. And I just want to explain a little bit of context in this episode because it's now 8.30 p.m. at night in London. But it's a lot earlier than that for my guest who's in California. And I think it must be 1.30 for you right now there, or I may have got the timing wrong. And this is a special episode because I have got the wonderful Dr. Mark Galston with me. And this episode is called I'm Dying to Tell You. And I'm going to allow him to explain why we're calling it that and I'm going to allow him to explain the context within which we're having this conversation. This is a deeply special episode a reminder that this podcast is a platform for incredible conversations with incredible people all over the world. Do not miss this episode. Come back to me just after this break. Hi, I'm Adam Pacifico, and welcome to The Leadership Enigma, a world-ranked, award-winning podcast that's insatiably curious as regards what leaders do, how they do it, and importantly, why. We'll delve into the human doing, but even deeper into the human being and the power of human-centered leadership to drive sustainable change. So whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts and disruptors, as together we will discover that success leaves clues. So it is a warm welcome to Dr. Mark Galston. How are you, Mark? Well, there's a certain irony going on in my life because I have a terminal illness and every day I get better mentally. In fact, I'm the best I've ever been mentally, even as my illness is progressing and and the treatments are getting more serious. And there's, and there's an irony to that. And as I do these interviews, uh, often what I will tell you is my latest idea of why I'm doing so well mentally, even as this illness progresses. Now, I've, this sounds strange in some ways, have been looking forward to this episode to have this conversation with you i have watched a number of your videos they're deeply personal they're intimate i think they're astounding in relation to the way you're thinking at the moment and i think this is something that i would ask anyone listening to this to watch those videos and i know that we'll go through how they can find those Mark, you've had an incredible career, and I'll come on to that, but can you just help people understand the current prognosis? Because it's, it's MDS at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's high-risk myelodysplastic syndrome, yep. and it progresses to acute myeloid leukemia. And the treatment, the main treatment, which I'll probably embark on, is a bone marrow transplant, which right. is basically an organ transplant. They take out your marrow and they put in the stem cells of a donor. And I'm fortunate that all my children qualify as donors. 
and we'll be going down that road in the not too distant future. And I was in a more negative place some months ago because uh, I was looking at old numbers and the old numbers were 20% mortality from the procedure, usually due to infection. Right. And and 48% survival rate at three years. But my hematologist said, oh, those are old numbers. Uh, the mortality rate is more like 10 to 15%. And the su survival rate, even for someone as old as I am, 75, is closer to 75%. So, um, you know, that's changed a little of my outlook. And I don't think I'll be as dying as soon as I thought I might. When did you actually find out that this was the condition you were dealing with? Well, I've had a condition called lymphoma, follicular lymphoma for over two years, but it was something that many people have. And it was a form in which we were watching it and uh, we hadn't even started treatment for it because I wasn't symptomatic and my labs were okay. But I had this pesky anemia that wouldn't go away and had a number of treatments, none of which worked. So we did a bone marrow biopsy I'm, I'm not sure, maybe seven months ago. Right. And that's when it, that's what it indicated that I had this high risk uh, myelodysplastic syndrome. And, uh, and, and to simplify it, what it means is I have a high percentage of cells called monoblasts. And when you're at 20%, it crosses over into leukemia. And I'm at nine to 10%. And normal is 5% or under. So we're currently, uh, I'm currently on a medication with the hopes of bringing that into remission to under 5% because uh, if they're going to do a transplant, they want me to be at that level. And I've recently had two courses uh, of a fairly expensive medication and it didn't work. Right. So uh, I just had a bone, another bone marrow biopsy a couple of days ago and we'll find out what the status is, and they'll probably shift me to another medication, and then I'll proceed with the bone marrow transplant. The first thing I want to say is, uh, please, I, I wish you all the best in relation to the treatment that you're having at the moment. And again, it's a huge thank you for you, you coming and having this conversation. And, and when we spoke briefly, you know, when we're going to focus on really your thoughts at the moment in relation to what each and every day provides us at a deeply human level and anyone who listens and watches the show knows that I'm passionate about human-centered leadership but I just want to give a little bit more context because you're starting to think about this and you're creating content as around I'm dying to tell you but you've had an incredible career co-founder of Deeper Coaching Institute you've been a professor of psychiatry at UCLA for over 20 years you're part of the Marshall Goldsmith 100, and I've had a number of those guests. It's been a privilege for all of them to come on the show. You're the author and co-author of multiple best-selling books, including Just Listen. I know from memory, it's not on my screen here, that you've actually worked with the FBI as well and the hostage negotiation team. And I'm a former law enforcement officer as well in between a legal career. So again, that, that struck a chord. Can you just help us understand that with all of that incredible background and rich experience 
What has that done for you now in relation to some of the thinking that you're having, some of the points of view that you're coming up with and some of the reflections that you're also having, uh, as you say, of, of 75 years, but of doing so much all over the world and helping leaders and organizations all over the world. It's a, an incredible platform for you now to be in this position. Any thoughts on, on that? Well, one of my specialties in my psychiatric career was death and dying. And my primary focus was suicide prevention. Mm. And uh, I guess I had some skills, but none of my patients died by suicide in 35 years. And as I look back on my life, that's the singular thing that I'm most proud of. I also did house calls to dying patients. And that gave me a front row seat and what makes for a good death, what makes for a bad death, what makes for a death with lots of regrets and a death uh, with satisfaction at a, at a well-lived life. And that was some years ago when I would do the house calls, I would make a note to myself, uh, pack that away. You, you may need that uh, for some day later. I can remember one a uh, very wealthy, well-known, popular icon in his industry. Right. And uh, and these people seem to like, and I guess my coaching clients like that, I'll develop a rapport and I leverage that to be really direct. So I remember meeting him one day and I said, you know, you really look like crap and I don't think it's because you're dying. You've been dying as long as I've known you. What's up? And he said, I don't think I've ever done anything important in my life. And then I listed all the things that he had done. And he looked at me and he was known for his wry smile. And he said, Duck con a con man, especially when he's dying. I've got all the love that money can buy. And then he said, everything I thought was important isn't. And everything that I thought wasn't important is and I've run out of time to fix it, and I don't like that. So one of the insights that that gave me, and I think why uh, I, I'm really at peace, is I've lived my life, my entire life, according to my core values, and my core values have been kindness, generosity, service, and curiosity. And so I don't really have anything to be ashamed of because if you discover at the end that you haven't lived your life according to your core values, it can it can really kind of tear you up. There's a famous Stephen Covey uh, saying that too many people uh, climb a ladder only to discover that it's on the wrong wall. Right. And And so... Uh, that's one of the things that's given me peace is that uh, I don't really have anything to be ashamed of. Uh, I have some regrets because I focused on making a difference. I focused on helping people more than I focused on money. So even though we're okay, uh, you know, you know, there's a part of me that regrets that I didn't make more money so that I could indulge my family more. Right. Uh, but but they're good. They're good, and uh, and they're sad. I want to ask uh, 
a question in relation to your when you're dealing with your own mortality but you're also dealing with your loved ones around you having to deal with your own mortality how have you dealt with that because I know the work that you've done on yourself and the reflections that you've had and as you say you are at peace perhaps more and more each day but you have a family and you have loved ones who are on the outside watching how do you deal with that well i'll share an incident and i may get an emotional as i share it with you i could relive it Uh, one of my other values uh, and for me the here's the criteria for me of a good death i'm not into pain and suffering and i'm fortunate to have the best doctor i've ever had in my life right and 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 what that's taught me, and if you're listening into this and concerned about leadership, a good team is critical to your success. A team that you trust, have confidence in, can rely on, depend on, uh, and, and, and who has your back and you have their back. And, uh, and I have that in my uh, uh, hematology oncology team uh, at a Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. And if I had had a different team, and I did have a consultation with someone who was very bright, but quite arrogant. And I'm thinking, ooh, if I had them and I was afraid to ask questions, uh, afraid to voice my concerns, I think I'd be less calm. But I think one of the lessons there is how important a team is, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your business partner. Uh, I often advise and coach startups and get in, get investors who aren't just giving you money, who are giving you input about how to be successful. And uh, so that's been an important lesson. But being a burden is something all my life I've never wanted to be. I've always focused on being a caretaker and a doctor. And recently, uh, I had a conversation with my son, who will be my donor. And I broke down, and uh, uh, and and my my family is a little bit on the British side. They're not British, but they hold things close to the chest. Right. And, I, I'm probably the one who's most in touch with his feelings in the family. And I remember uh, we were in the kitchen and I said, uh, I'm thinking of dying sooner than later because I don't want to put this family through what I'm going to put it through. Uh, and that bothers me. And, uh, I can't stand it, in fact. And my son was a little bit buttoned down. He looked at me. And he just broke down. He said, I don't want you to die. And uh, I cried, too. And what he doesn't know that I know because of my background. And if you're listening in, Please take note of this. That'll be one of the top three conversations he has in his life. Because it's very rare for people to be 
that emotionally honest with anyone. People want to be, they just don't know how to be. And something I want to share with you, which has been another realization. Uh, I live to serve. I live to help. Uh, and about five months ago, I was in conversation with someone and they said, so how are you doing, Mark? And usually my response is, I'm doing great. I'm fine. Uh, let's focus on you. What are you working on? What's important? Uh, let's get to that and see if we can make it happen. But instead, I decided not to say I'm fine. I said, oh, I've got a few issues. And he said, what's going on? And that's before some of these issues with my illness sorted out in hopefully a more positive way. And I said to him, um, I think I might be dying. And I got emotional. And I got embarrassed and I apologized. And I said, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I, I apologize. And he was the beginning of a series. It's probably up to about 25 people. Right. And they've all said the same thing. Don't apologize. And the, and the responses I've learned from them, well, 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 I'm sorry, I got emotional. And they've all said, do not apologize. And then when I drilled down to find out, well, why? And one of them said, you're not a burden, you're a gift. And I said, what? And he said, this is the most intimate conversation I've ever had in my life. Then a second leader said to me, uh, I envy you. Wow. I said, what? And he said, not your illness. You can have your illness. He said, the fact that you can feel safe enough with me to open up the way you are. And you are safe. I'm not going to slam you. I'm not going to pivot to, well, I'm sorry to hear about that, Mark. Yeah, you know, if we can't do business, uh, you know, I got things to do. Uh, and, he's, and he looked at me and he said, I envy you because you see yourself as embarrassed. I see you as open and free and feeling safe enough to trust me. And he said, I've never felt that. I've never felt so safe to be as open as you are. And then here's the other thing I'm collecting, and you may actually say, count me in. It's my own version of the 700 Club. Right. And what people have been saying to me, including Marshall Goldsmith, and, and you know, I think the world of Marshall, but he can be very transactional. And if you have a, if I had a business idea for Marshall, you know, he would say, well, that's interesting. And then he'd refer me to, you know, five other people <laughs> or handlers and, and nothing would come of it. But I could sense his caring about me and, and I got emotional. And he said what all these people have been saying to me, 24-7, Mark. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, you could call me 24-7. 
I'm not going to call them. And what I realized from this is there's an incredible power of true vulnerability. It can't be connected to helplessness. So apparently when I get emotional, I don't come off as helpless. Like, oh, what am I going to do? Because helplessness can sometimes feel overwhelming and intrusive. And it's like I've sorted the vulnerability off the helplessness. It's kind of like what they're going to do with my son as a donor. Mm. They're going to sort out stem cells from his blood cells to a dialysis-like process, and then they're going to inject his stem cells into me. And I, I just want to share that because when I've done presentations to audiences, and I've said, raise your hand uh, if you've had fewer than five totally raw, intimate, honest conversations with your dad or either parent, but often dads are a little bit more cut off from their emotions. You know, we hmm. tend to be solution oriented and logic oriented. And nearly everybody raised their hand that they've had fewer than five. And then I said, raise your hands if you've had fewer than three. Um, you know, and, you know, and, you know, several, a lot of hands stayed up. And I said, raise your hand if you've never had a conversation like that with your dad. I never did with my dad. Right. Half the room raised their hand. So I'm just sharing this with you. You know, when I think of that, you know, the house call to that person who thinks he just missed out on what was important. Um, what he missed out on was emotionally connected to the connecting to people he loved, uh, letting them connect to him and even being connected to himself. And there's a lot of people listening, a lot of leaders where, you know, yes, you'll take your family out and you'll show your love and you'll pay for vacations and they'll say, thank you, uh, dad. Thank you, grandpa. That was great. And, mm. you know, I was glad to do it. And, and you'll know, you know, some of each other's interests, but you won't know each other. And I'm just urging you, don't live a life without emotionally knowing the people you love and communicating to them that it is worth getting to emotionally know them. That so, it's not a burden. Thank you, Mark. I've got so many things stand out for me as you've just explained that and thank you for doing it. I mean, really, you know, the gentleman you spoke about who perhaps all, all of the trappings that one might associate with success, but said, I've got all the love that money can buy. And it sounded as if there was deep regret there towards the end of his life and no time to remedy. Something else that, that you've said that has also really struck me was, and I appreciate you telling this story and you, you talked about your son and I have two teenagers myself and so I think and reflect on my family unit. And my daughter's actually been in this studio, Mark, and talking very personally about some struggles that she went through. And that episode is yet to be released. 
and it will be released when she's ready for it to be released. I think it's incredibly powerful, but it was a moment in time and you said something that really stuck with me at a deeply personal level. You said it's an honor, not a burden to care. And and that that as well has really resonates with me. And I'm gonna and I'm reflecting, Mark, and I hope you know, forgive me for this. You you also speak about vulnerability. It has come up a lot from senior leaders. I've had three CEOs who have independently to each other used the phrase, it's time to take the mask off. And I've explored my own vulnerability with some of the things that have gone on, Mark, and I had a wonderful conversation with a, a doctor. It was in another country, and she described vulnerability to me, and she said something that, again, resonated. And she said vulnerability was the ability of someone to truly understand their needs and have the courage to ask other people to help them with those needs. And so many leaders, Mark, won't go there. For whatever reason, they won't go there. So as I summarize in some way, with the reflections that you've just given and with the coaching that you've done throughout your life to incredibly senior and successful executives all over the world, would you change now some of the advice you would give senior leaders with the experience that you're going through and the reflections that you've had? Well, I, I, the Deeper Coaching Institute, which yeah. is at On Global Leadership, ongloballeadership.com forward slash DCI. Mm -hmm. And the focus of that is that uh, there's a, a number of people who have coaching and they discover things about themselves that they didn't know and they want to go deeper. Yeah. So frequently when a, a large enterprise organization hires a coach for someone, yeah, yeah, it's okay if he or she has some personal development, but they really need to smooth out their non-technical skills. And we do 360s and we want to make sure that, you know, people think differently of them who now don't particularly like them. And in the process, uh, there's a lot of people who nearly everyone could benefit from coaching. But most people don't want it. They find it too personally intrusive. They, they feel like they'll lose control in the process and they don't want to open up uh, and they'll become defensive. Well, what's happened is they've usually put their company at risk and the board or the CEO will say, uh, no, you better fix this. Right. But in the process, they sometimes discover something personal and it, it benefits them in ways they, they couldn't have foreseen. And so the Deeper Coaching Institute is for people who want to go much deeper than you know, most, most coaches are not trained as therapists. And yes, you can say you sound like you have limiting beliefs. Uh, you know, you, it sounds like uh, you can see that emotional intelligence might improve how you're doing. Uh, but with the Deeper Coaching Institute, we go much deeper. We, uh, uh, so a comment we might make uh, as you listen without a solution, you listen, 
And when they finish saying something, instead of offering advice or anything, you create a space and you might say something, you're really messed up about this, aren't you? Huh? Yeah, this is, this is eating away at you. And you can't stop it. Is that true? So can you see how that's a different kind of avenue and then you go deeper and deeper? I'll share an anecdote from Just Listen okay. that people remember. I was having trouble getting an appointment with a CEO, you know, and someone introduced me as someone, you know, that might be able to help with certain things. And, you know, and I finally got into his office about 20 minutes late. And you can, I could tell that there's a lot of things on his mind. And again, I guess I can be a little bit direct and feisty wherever I am. And we're into the meeting about three minutes. Yeah. And he's, he's not really looking at me, but there's something on his mind. And I said, Hey, how much time you got for me? He went, what? I said, yeah, look on your calendar. How much time? And, and he, well, he said, 20 minutes. And I could tell that I had a minute to make my case or I was going to get thrown out. And I said, there's something, we're into minute three. There's something on your mind uh, uh, that is more important than meeting with me. I'm guessing it's more important than meeting with anything. And you can't give me your undivided attention. And I think what we were going to talk about deserves that. And you can't give it to me. So here's the deal. Let's stop now. You can kick me out of the office and tell your assistant, never let him back in the building. But whatever you do, take the remaining 16 minutes and take care of whatever's on your mind because you you owe it to yourself. You owe it to people you'll meet like me uh, and just do it. And he looked at me and he started to tear up. Wow. And I said to myself, Mark, this is the corporate world. You're not supposed to make them cry. <laughs> You're not meant to do that with CEOs, Mark. Yeah. And he said, uh, you know something that nobody else knows in, in this company because I'm rather private. My wife's having a biopsy and it doesn't look good. And I said, leave and be with her. Make a call. Uh, kick me out and take care of that. Uh, and he looked at me and he shook his shoulders, you know, gathering his strength together. And he said, uh, 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 he said, you've got my undivided attention and you've got your full 20 minutes. And I'll share an insight that I'm still wrapping my head around that I got from someone I'm a mentor to. Okay. Uh, uh, she's the co-founder with her husband of Melissa and Doug. And it's one of the top upscale toy companies in America for young children. Right. Wonderful toys. And uh, blocking uh, what did she say? Uh, Oh, she's, uh, she said, if you can identify a feeling you're having, 
and you just feel it, it dissipates in 90 seconds. And I think I gave you a taste of that. I, I wasn't intending to, but when I shared that story about my son and me and partially relived the story of opening up to these people who said 24-7, mm-hmm. I, I think when you can identify something and just let yourself feel it, it's true. But 99 plus percent of the world runs away from feeling feelings. People get emotional, but that doesn't mean you're feeling your feelings. In fact, when you're getting emotional, you're running away from what you're feeling. You're reacting to it. And, I, and I'm and i still wrapping my uh, head around that one because it's so true. So if you're listening, and you don't have to necessarily do this with another person, but if you can identify what you're feeling and just allow yourself to feel it, you don't have to do anything about it and it will rise and it will dissipate. I think I demonstrated it even, you know, in this episode. Mm. Mark, with a world that is incredibly changeable, uh, the world feels very volatile for a whole host of reasons. What is your thinking or really your messages now for, for modern day leaders in relation to the importance of, really connecting with the people that they lead, really connecting with people at a deeply human level, which in, for uh, some oh, is I, maybe quite I, frightening, Mark, but, but what are your thoughts on, on how important <clears throat> it is to modern-day leadership? Um, I think it's critical because um, I, have, I have a model for coaching leaders. Right. And the, and the model, I have multiple models, but this model is what you want to be as a leader is someone who engenders trust, confidence, respect, admiration, safety, uh, inspiration, and it helps if they actually like you. <laughs> yeah. Now, you, now, you, well, now a lot to. of people... <laughs> Yeah. Well, a lot of people will say, oh, that's really woo-woo, Mark. I said, really? How effective do you think it will be if instead of that, nobody trusts you, nobody has confidence in you, nobody <laughs> respects you, nobody admires you, nobody feels inspired by you, and nobody likes you? Yeah, it's probably over, you right? Know? Right. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and there's actually ways uh, – uh, to do that, I'll, I'll give you a couple things, okay. uh, a couple tips uh, that if you do these, the result will be that your people feel those things. One of the things is probably the top things is that you're not robotic, but you're unflappable under pressure. You know that. Uh, and, and so you're calm. Uh, uh, one of my favorite leaders, and let's not get into policies, but Angela Merkel, I thought was astonishing. And so you're unflappable under pressure, but you're present. So you're not robotic. Um, uh, also, uh, you, you don't 
shoot from the hip. Uh, what you say you mean and you mean what you say. Uh, you have a track record of being able to get things done. So all these things are building trust and confidence. One of my favorite books is Judgment, How Leaders Make Great Judgment Calls. And it was written by my late mentor, Warren Bennis, big leadership guy in America, probably known elsewhere too. Right. And Noel, Noel Tishy. And he said, uh, the three areas where leaders, uh, where it's most important to make good judgment calls, and good judgment calls, meaning their judgment worked out, are strategy, people, and crises. You know, and so when you have a track record of having a strategy that people can follow, make sense, feels like it'll work, feels doable, and and you have a track record of picking the right people, as you as a leader, you can hardly get anything done on your own, let's face it. And then in crises, you know, are you someone that's unflappable and present and uh, able to take charge without being controlling? And in a crisis, you might be controlling because people are running around in a panic. But then as soon as the crisis passes, uh, you need to be able to go back to taking charge without being controlling. So can you picture some of these in your mind's eye? I certainly can. There's something I want to share with you because one of my I'm dying to tell you videos. Yes. So, so they're on YouTube and they're on uh, TikTok. Uh, I'll put them in. And, I'll put the links in the show notes, Mark, to a number of these references as well. Yeah. So one that, uh, you know, there's there's many up there, but one of them is called Visionary Dying. I saw that one. Because I identified something I call the three Ds of leadership and visionaries. And you can think of Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. The first one is they define reality out in the future that is not only impossible, but is unimaginable. And one of the other things about visionaries that enable them to see that is they see the unknown as an adventure to be dived into and lived, whereas the majority of people see the unknown as a danger to be avoided and feared. Yeah. So they jump into that and they see things. Uh, uh, Steve Jobs saw a mouse and a graphical user interface at a big enterprise place like Xerox Park. They didn't know what to do with it. And he saw it and he said, let's go build the Macintosh. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he saw the same thing with creating the iPhone and Elon Musk did the same thing with electric cars and, and private space travel with SpaceX. So they define reality, they declare their intention to do it. In fact, Steve Jobs famously had the reality distortion field. He'd see it so clearly and believed it so much that he would make you believe it. Mm. And then they decide strategy. Well, how are we going to do that? 
And what my advice, my advice to you, if you can see that, write those down, uh, define reality, declare your intention to make it so and decide strategy. But then one of the most important things is get someone else to deal with the people issues because these people hate people issues you know, because they're visionaries. People are messy and they resent them. They take up their time. They're not clear. And so realize if you can't get anything done through through by yourself, you have to do it through people. And if you run over people, you can abuse them. And if you have a rocket ship figuratively and literally into the future, people will jump onto that even at the expense of their marriages. But uh, it's really doesn't excuse being abusive. So uh, write those things down. And I did that with dying. I had a picture of what a good death looks like. Right. And one of my mentors, uh, who was a death and dying specialist, uh, we can I can send you a link to an article where I featured him on the criteria for a good death, and I meet all of them except living till you're ninety, with your mental faculties in touch. Right. Um, and by the way, one of the reasons I'm pushing out so much content is that. A not uncommon long-term side effect of a bone marrow transplant is some cognitive impairment. Right. And I'm thinking, I have a feeling that if that happens to me, I'm going to lose my creativity. I'm reasonably articulate. So I feel kind of an urgency to push stuff out if that happens. And I hope I'm a good sport about it and I can be a doting grandparent and husband and brother and friend but that's it's a big part of my identity being creative and being somewhat articulate so that's why i'm pushing out a lot of stuff and, and I've, so I've, I've i've declared my intention yes to live that good death and my strategy kind of goes back to the beginning what's crucial to my strategy is have have a great team i love my hematologist this has been a real pleasure for me and as the title of your book which i see on the screen there it's been my role to just listen and i, I want to kind of finish on something which i remember you saying from one of your videos uh, and it was about your father uh, i lost my mother just before the pandemic my father is still here and, and is in good shape he's 93 mark so he's you know amazing to still have around I think you you heard was it your your father say, "Don't treat a big thing like a small thing, and don't treat a small thing." Well, like I'll, a big thing. I'll share that... this. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and there may and there may not be a dry eye uh, even in this interview. Oh well, forgive it, me. It right? it, it's just something that, <laughs> please. All my life, I wanted to learn some wisdom from my dad. And he was a hard worker and he was responsible. Uh, uh, he had a tendency to be a little bit critical and negative. And, and, and I was looking to him for wisdom uh, and I didn't receive it. And I remembered 
when I realized that he had Alzheimer's. And he could be a really dominating person. And on that phone call, he said, oh, 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 oh let me let me put your mother on. Mm. And I remember saying to my wife, I'm not going to get what I still need. And then uh, he died. He had Alzheimer's and then a stroke. And we had a private viewing before we went out you know, for the uh, funeral service. And it was open casket. And he had had a stroke and, uh, you know, his face was a little twisted. And and I remember kissing him on the cheek. And as clearly as I'm hearing your voice, I heard his voice say, don't treat a big thing like a small thing. And don't treat a small thing like a big thing. Don't do what I did. So I got my wisdom. And how has that guided you from that point, Mark? What, what's been the impact for you? Well, I've, uh, I've done my best to do that. Uh, one of the other episodes, and I'll just do it quickly because uh, you know, I know you have a time limit. In fact, my first episode of I'm Dying to Tell You is something I call Michelangelo Dying. I've seen that one as and well. Mike, and, Mike, and Michelangelo famously said i saw the angel in the marble and i carved to set it free and what i realized is i saw what was unimportant in life that i was still doing and justifying it and i saw it so clearly what was unimportant that i was still doing and i just cut it off i just cut it off right then and when i cut off everything that was unimportant, what was important uh, shined out at me. And I'm going to ride that one till the end. Mark, I just want to say a massive thank you uh, for this episode. Uh, It's a privilege to chat to you. This just really highlights to me the importance of having a platform to have these kinds of conversations. Had it not been for this podcast created in the midst of lockdown number one, we would never have met. And we met through another guest, Simon Leslie. So it's a huge thank you to him. But it is a massive thank you to you to having this conversation and and being so vulnerable and sharing some of the things that are so important to you listen i wish you all the best with the current treatment it sounds like the prognosis as you said is somewhat better than it perhaps was a few months ago and i hope that you'll come back and chat to us again and share some more reflections uh and that we can continue the conversation at some point i look forward to it you know i I went back to some of my 24 7 club and say the prognosis is not as dire as I thought. Do you want to take that back? <laughs> what, what did they say? Come on, tell us. <laughs> they said, no, it still stands. You know, and, I, and I'll tell you, it wasn't the diagnosis. It was the vulnerability yeah. and, and what the, some of those people said that they'd never had a conversation like that. Right. Mark, you're an absolute gentleman. Thank you very much. Best of luck to you and for everything that's going on. And please, let's stay connected and let's continue the conversation. But many thanks indeed.
Join us again next week for more curiosity and insight with the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with me on LinkedIn or visit us at www.leadersenigma.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms and on our dedicated YouTube channel. Thanks again for joining the community.